Welcome to the Technology Transaction Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the craft of negotiating and executing technology-related deals. I'm your host, Jay Ward. I've been practicing working with and advising emerging growth and large companies on venture capital and technology law matters since the early 2000s. Some of the best experience and training I've had was in supporting both the Google and Oracle cloud legal teams. I did my big law firm time at Heller, Ehrman, and Reed Smith, and I'm also an alumni of Williams College and Harvard Law. I have a law practice specializing in helping buyers and sellers of technology products and services close deals faster and more efficiently. I'm also the founder of the Black Technology Attorneys Group on LinkedIn. You can learn more about me and my practice at www.jwardlaw.com, and you spell out the J, obviously, J-A-Y. We're going to launch this podcast with a general approach to technology contracts review. It's surprising to me how little information there is about negotiating technology transactions on the internet or in published works, given the size of the industry and the volume of deals that get done annually. According to one source, the United States has the most advanced software and information services industry in the world. More than 40% of the global $5 trillion IT market is in North America and primarily in the United States. The US IT industry accounts for $1.8 trillion of US value-added GDP. That's more than 10% of the national economy and represents over 11.8 million jobs. According to CompTIA, there are more than 525,000 software and IT services companies in the United States, and of which, let's see, 40,500 tech startups were established in 2018 alone. This includes software publishers, suppliers of custom computer programming services, computer systems design firms, and facilities management companies. The industry also draws a highly educated and skilled U.S. workforce of nearly 2 million people, and that number continues to grow over the past decade. In any case, this is a huge market that deserves a focus on how its deals are done. This podcast will analyze cloud services deals, software licensing agreements, hardware purchasing agreements, and professional services agreements. We'll also do deep dives into topics of interest to technology law practitioners such as privacy, data security, indemnification, and other risk mitigation terms such as insurance provisions. As we get started, I'd like to recommend a very helpful resource, and that is David Tolan's book, The Technology Contracts Handbook, Cloud Computing Agreements, Software Licenses, and Other IT Contracts for Lawyers and Business People, the second edition, not the first. It's available on Amazon. David is a friend. He's not a sponsor, but I generally think his book is a great reference. I also think it can be used creatively to establish what market terms may be in looking at technology deals. So let's get started. Before I start a project, I like to do a triage approach. It's my version of an intake interview. A lot of clients, especially non-attorneys, may resist this. They'll throw over a contract and ask for comments and not offer any kind of background on the deal. And I encourage you to resist this. Take the time to do it. Here are the 10 key points I'd like to cover in my preliminary review. Point one, you have to understand the technology. Not all, quote, technology deals are the same. Software licensing uh, isn't 
a cloud services deal and it's not a professional services deal and it's not a hardware purchase. These deals all are different. Take the time to learn what the technology is you're going to be evaluating or selling. Go beyond, is this a cloud deal versus an on-premises deal? Not all cloud deals are the same. There's software as a service, infrastructure as a service, platform as a service. These terms are critical to understand for a risk assessment perspective. Point two, who's on the other side? Assess the partner risk and determine what your leverage is. If you're going up against Google or Amazon, that's really different than going up against a Series A funded startup out of Kansas. An uncapped indemnity might be a great win if you're looking at it from a buyer's perspective, but if the company is thinly funded, it means absolutely nothing. Check out if the company is offering insurance or is self-insured. What's their operating history? Do a Google search and look at whatever news may be reported about the company. I have a great story involving AWS. I was going up against them representing a large buyer here in the Bay Area. And AWS did what AWS predictably would do, and they took a hard line about not offering any sort of meaningful indemnification coverage. But I did some diligence on the company and found that the service that we were, we were buying was actually the subject of a patent litigation suit in the Eastern District of Texas. So I threw that back at AWS's counsel, noting that if we did this deal almost immediately, we could be subject to being brought into this patent lawsuit. And surprise, AWS substantially increased the indemnification it was prepared to offer on the deal. Third point, what is the deal? What's been agreed to? What are the key business terms that your stakeholders need to see in the deal? What do the parties want to achieve? At this point, I'd like to put in a good word about term sheets versus definitive agreements. If you're in a complex deal early on, go with a term sheet to negotiate the key points. Trying to negotiate a complex technology transaction by trading red lines of definitive drafts is just a waste of time. You can quickly get into draft 12, draft 14. It's faster and more efficient to go with a term sheet than in negotiating key terms in definitive agreements. Point four, what's the existing relationship between the client and the other side? Is this a new vendor or is, does a, uh, an existing relationship exist between the parties? If this is a follow-on to an existing relationship, what existing paperwork or terms can we leverage? Everything from governing law to risk mitigation terms can, in certain circumstances when it's appropriate, be copied over, and you don't have to go through trying to negotiate those terms de novo. Point five, economics. How much money is at stake? This isn't dispositive, but it's helpful for risk assessment. A seven-figure deal can present, in some um, cases, the same risk as a five-figure deal or vice versa. But it's key to know um, how much money is at stake in order to get a sense of leverage? How and when will payments be made? If you're dealing with a professional services transaction, are the payments being tied to clearly established milestone performance milestones? And if not, why not? Point six. Another thing I'd like to deal uh, like to establish early 
is who are we dealing with? Is it the general counsel of the company or a contracts manager? If I'm on the buyer's side, are we going against a deal desk? Are we negotiating against salespeople? Are we dealing with managers of the company? For buyers, when I am representing buyers, I, I have to caution um, my colleagues about dealing with contract managers. They tend to have limited authority to make the changes you need. As seller's counsel, it's great. They can provide a really uh, great service in terms of triaging and negotiating a lot of a services or software license agreement. They know the terms. Experienced ones can be great. But when, when you're representing a buyer, you want to get to the most senior uh, executive you can on the other side, and contract managers tend not to, not to be them. They have limited authority to make changes. Here, I'd also like to note um, the ABA rules regarding contact with unrepresented parties. ABA Rule 2100 is communication with a representative party. And it states, while representing a client, a member should not communicate directly or indirectly about the subject of the representation with a party the member knows to be represented by another lawyer in the matter, unless the member has the consent of the other lawyer. So oftentimes, or it's not unusual for a buyer to contact me and, and recommend that I contact the salesperson on the other side to negotiate a deal. This is clearly against the ABA rules if the other side is represented by counsel, and oftentimes they are, invariably they are. So take the extra step, and if you're going to do this and go up against a, um, uh, a salesperson to negotiate a deal, for example, make sure that their counsel has sent you an email uh, allowing or authorizing that, that interaction. What this can do is avoid later on when their counsel does get involved in the deal, they potentially could be really pissed off at you for having negotiations uh, with their unrepresented sales colleague. Point seven, what's my leverage? If the prior questions haven't established how much leverage I have, either from buyer side or seller side, Ask your business stakeholder client how much leverage you have. Let's not waste time. Drill down on what the project is. What stakeholders are involved in the company? For example, is this deal getting CEO attention because it's a huge deal that's got to close by the end of the quarter? So if you have a lot of leverage, great, use it. But if you don't, there's no point in going uh, bleeding all over a, a document and redlining it if at the end of the day, you don't have the leverage and your business stakeholder knows it uh, and can communicate that to you. Point eight, timing. Critical to understand upfront. What are your key deadlines? For buyers, I like to work backwards from any critical implementation dates and determine uh, when things need to get done. For sellers, you have to know not just when the end of quarter date is, but also what's the protocol or approval process for getting deals signed both at your client company, but also at the buyer shop also. Try to get those dates and understand those protocols and processes really early. Point nine, think about termination scenarios early. Ask about them, especially if you're representing buyers. If you get the sense that um, a termination will materially impact uh, a, your buyer client in an adverse way, then that brings up the need to look at post-termination support clauses, data transfer provisions, 
and any sort of advance notice uh, and planning that the seller will need to cooperate uh, with us for in terms of ending the deal and making sure that the buyer can move to a new service provider or new technology if needed. And then finally, point 10. This may seem minor, but it actually can impact uh, deals, particularly if it's a tight time frame. Is the document you're getting a PDF or a Word document? And if it's a Word document, is it protected or unprotected? I lost a few days just recently on a deal that I was working on because the uh, we were using seller paper and the seller kept sending us um, protected versions of the document in Word. And in order for me to do my redlining, I had to go back not once but twice to them and tell them, stop protecting this document. I need to do redlines. And we really lost days in the negotiating cycle as a result of it. Now, some people are fans of PDF conversion. I am not. And this is why it's a problem. Yes, a PDF conversion, I can execute that in a number of seconds. That's not a big deal. But any document that's converted from PDF to Word, I'm going to have to proofread and probably I'm going to spend time correcting uh, mistakes, either in the font, the pagination, the numeration. And it's just not worth it. With a quick one minute phone call, I can get on the phone or my business stakeholder can get on the phone with the other side. And then they can, within minutes, get me a Word document. So I think the time and effort spent in trying to get a PDF converted, PDF document converted for redlining and negotiation purposes, it just isn't worth it. I don't trust it. I'll have to spend time checking it. And it's just faster if the creator of the document just sends me an unprotected Word version. But I do think the process, or I also think the process, can be an important um, indicator of leverage. If, for example, a vendor sends me, as buyer's counsel, a PDF document and refuses to send me a Word document, well, then I need to have a conversation with my client about how much leverage do we actually have. A PDF document is essentially sending a message of take it or leave it. And if that's the situation, there's really no point to me redlining the document at all. All I need to do is an issues analysis and highlight to the client, here are the risk factors, you can make a decision. So again, that request for a word version can again lead to important signals about how much leverage you have to have. And actually, if it is a take or leave it situation, no sense in me redlining it, much faster just to do the issue spotting and then move from there. Thank you for your time today. Again, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me at jjay at jwardlaw.com or on my website, jwardlaw.com. Thank you very much, and I hope you found this helpful. Looking forward to talking to you at our next episode.